The reading for today is from Galatians 3, verses 15 to 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, help us today, we pray, as we look at these few verses from the middle of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, we ask you for your help. Lord, that here in Vancouver, on this day, in this moment, that your word might ring true to us, that it might form us into the kind of people you're calling us to be, and that you might strengthen us for the mission you've called us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Brett. Uh, It is my joy to be opening God's Word with you today from Galatians 3, 15 to 18, which you just heard read. Um, Last week, we jumped back into our study of Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, and Jake walked us through a a difficult text in Galatians 3, the verses right before this in 10 to 14. He did a great job, and and thinking about this this week and, and, and looking maybe for me, I had to kind of get my mind back into teaching Galatians a little bit. Um, one pastor said something that rang true to me, so I'll share it with you. He said, Galatians is written for Christians who aren't very good at being Christians. That resonated with me. <laughs> it's written for Christians who aren't very good at being Christians. He meant that in the most gracious way you could take it. And I think he's right. It's written for people who struggle in how to live this out, how to walk this out, what it means to serve God. So today we're going to look uh, at this passage, and I'm going to take you into Genesis as well, but I'm really trying to answer two questions. Well, one question posed two different ways. The question is, how do you know that you'll receive what God promises you? How do you know that? How can I trust God's promise to me? That's the question I want us to just have in the back of our minds. And Lord willing, by the end of this message, I will have at least attempted to answer that. And given you what I think this text is saying by way of answer to that. Now we need to know that Christians are people who trust in Jesus Christ alone in order to be accepted by God. Now I emphasize Jesus Christ alone for two particular reasons. There are more that we could emphasize. But first, because Jesus is the only person who has ever lived a completely righteous, sinless life. Hey, the rest of us have not. So if you're new, you maybe never been around a bunch of Christians before, you're sitting there, or your palms are sweaty already just because you're in church. Um, let me just tell you something. You're among a bunch of people who, who the only thing that we have in common as we walk in here is that, we're, that, we, that we need help. We walk in here with, a, a, hopefully, a posture of humility that says we don't have it all figured out, but we're actually here for help. We're here because we are dependent upon what Christ has accomplished in our place. So we see the standard that God would have for what it means to be accepted by him. And we know that we fall short, but that because of what Christ has done, we then can be accepted by him. That's the first reason that I highlight that that we 
are people who recognize that it's in Christ alone that we receive this acceptance. The second one is that um, there's nothing else in this world, in this life, that can accomplish or is needed to accomplish what Christ has already done. And so there's nothing we can add to what he's done to know that we are accepted by God. Uh, Romans 3.23, it says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. That's all of us. So that's, that's that you know, nice old granny that you had who prayed for you, whose Bible was all marked up because she spent hours talking to Jesus every day, reading his word. You go, she fell short of God's glory? Yeah, that's why she was reading the Bible the whole time talking to him. She knew that. She might not have let you know that. All have fallen short. Now that's a problem because God is a righteous and holy God. And because of his righteousness, holiness, and perfection, he needs to judge and justly judge us for our sin. We sang a little bit earlier. We talked, talked about the wrath of God. Now, that's not language that you would hear talked about in song or sung together in song unless there's actually a solution for that. Right? That's a problem. So God doesn't actually just turn a blind eye to our sin. He doesn't sweep it under, you know, he doesn't have like some sort of cosmic carpet that he lifts up and just goes, let's just sweep that sin away and just hide it. That's not actually how he does it. That's not how he accepts us. Last week, Jake preached, like I said, a difficult text. And he said, everybody who breaks God's laws under a curse. Again, welcome to Christ City. That's the problem. That's the problem that we looked at last week. But it's only a problem if you're too proud to admit that you need salvation. So this is the only way that it's a problem. It's a problem, but it doesn't have to be an enduring problem. You just have to own that and then accept what God has accomplished in your place through Christ. So in order to save us from the curse that Jake talked about last week, which again is just another way of talking about uh, the, the, the judgment that our sin deserves, God sent his son into the world. Now during his entire life, Jesus was entirely righteous and sinless before God. He lived the life that Adam and Eve and the rest of us have not been able to live. And then through his death on a cross, Jesus suffered the punishment of sin that each of us deserved. So he takes our sin upon himself, and he is condemned in our place. Jake preached this from verse 13 last week. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Now, in order to demonstrate that Jesus' death was the full and final payment for all of our sin, God raises him from the dead. Jesus is gloriously and victoriously resurrected. We don't serve a God who died, period. We serve a God who died and is risen. That's the gospel. It's the good news toward us that through faith in Christ, we can be fully accepted by God. Because we are trusting that Jesus lived and died and rose again for us, we can know that God will forgive us and that he joyfully accepts us. That's the good news to us. So the problem doesn't seem like such a comprehensive problem when you know that God has already made a way for us to come to him. Our faith joins us with Jesus in such a way that our sin becomes his and his righteousness becomes ours. We call it the great exchange. It's a great exchange for us. As we give him our sin and our shame and our brokenness, and he gives us his perfection and sinlessness and holy righteousness. It's gifted to us. 
Jesus takes our sin upon himself, upon the cross, and he offers us a share in his right standing with God. You can come to him because he has made a way. Now listen, I said Paul wrote this letter to the churches of Galatia because they're having a hard time believing that. That's why I say this. They were having a hard time believing that. They thought that couldn't have been the whole picture. There must be more. Well, thank God that he wrote this letter to the churches of Galatia because I too struggle with this and I think it helps me so much. And we've seen this all the way through Galatians. That they were having a hard time believing this because there were other false teachers who were there who were telling them that they needed to add to the work of Christ. Now, if we're honest, and I hope we can be honest, we can be honest. If we're honest, there are times where we would much prefer that Christ accomplishes 99% of our salvation and then we get to earn that little bit. Or maybe you're more of a 50-50 person. Like you really want to earn a spot. You want to earn your keep before God. The reason we love that so much is it gives us that false sense of security and control. Because at least then some of it is up to us. We like that. It's just that's not the message of the gospel. But it's the message that the Galatians were struggling with. And I know a few of you. Seems like this is still a problem. I look a guy in the mirror every morning. Face to face. Who struggles with this. We think we need to pad Jesus' resume of righteousness with our own good works and our own moral accomplishments. And sometimes it would feel better if we could just do that. If we just knew what we had to do. Just give me something I need to do to be right with God. Now Paul says, I need you to believe in Jesus. You need to trust him. So we've been using this refrain and we used it all fall. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But Jesus plus anything. You try to add to the work of Jesus. Jesus plus anything, it equals nothing. Nothing you can do to add to the saving work of Jesus to make you deserve it. Because that's not how grace works. Now, Christ City, and I'm speaking to those of you who've been here for a while, not just those of you who showed up this morning, okay? Christ City, you've heard this before. One of the things that I heard for the first 11 or 12 weeks of this series from our community group leaders and from others is that some of our community groups and others felt that it would be good if we picked up the pace a little bit. Kind of moving through Galatians a little slow. Right? Okay. Some of you are hesitant because you know what's maybe coming. You're not quite sure. Am I supposed to smile and agree with that? Or do I duck and kind of weave around it? Some of you would have preferred that we moved a little quickly. You said this is getting repetitive. We've, hear, we've heard this message. We've heard it over and over again. You keep preaching the same gospel message every week. And it kind of makes me smile in my heart. Because I know I'm getting somewhere and I know the spirit is actually revealing and exposing your heart for where it really is. Just tell me what to do. Mm. Don't take my word for it. Tim Keller, much more authoritative than me. If you think you really, really understand the gospel, you don't. If you really think you haven't even begun to understand the gospel... You do. There has to be a lifelong process of more and more deeply realizing the wonder of the gospel. 
And I would add to it that there needs to be a lifelong process of realizing the wonder of the gospel and our need for it. So Christ said, yeah, I love you and I hate to break it to you. But I've been preaching the same sermon every week for five and a half years here. It's not unique to the Galatians series. And then for five or six years before that, anytime I preached, same sermon. I don't see that changing. And if it does, you should fire me. Okay, I know I'm preaching to the choir. I, I get that. And like I've said to you many times, preaching to the choir is underrated. Because the choir at times lines up and says, stop preaching the gospel to me. Just tell me what I need to do next. And, oh, there's the magnifying glass on our soul. Now, if you think we're moving too slow through Galatians and you don't like it because of the quality of the preaching, that's fine. But don't, don't judge the quality of the text. We need this. We need to hear the gospel message because the gospel is the only thing that can be the engine that drives us and propels us into the next steps of our Christian faith. So you don't graduate the gospel. You just move deeper into it. All right, that's my introduction. You can breathe. You can breathe. You can breathe. It's okay. It's going to be good. I have actually two introductions today, so that was my first one. <laughs> Verse 15 in our text today uh, starts out Paul trying to give an illustration of what he's been talking about for the first 14 verses of Galatians 3. So I need to go back and I just need to look at that really quickly so that it makes sense. So let me set up our text today by taking you back. Galatians 3, 1 to 3. Just look at this with me. You okay? You need to hear the gospel more than you think you do. You can send me an email about it later, okay? Jake, ChristCityChurch.ca. If he doesn't respond to you, there's a second email address. Just send it to Associate Pastor Dave, ChristChurch.ca. Okay. This is, this is why I need the gospel. I want you to love me. Okay, look, I have a like, fear of man issues. I know that I don't, you don't, don't think that. Brett doesn't care what I think of him. Yeah, I do. I really do. Probably too much sometimes. All right, gosh. This is, this is cheaper than therapy. That's fine. Galatians 1, uh, 3, 1 to 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Okay, when I preached this back in the last Sunday of November, I said that this tells us that we are cross people and spirit people and faith people. Okay, Paul is appealing to the experience that the churches of Galatia have had of coming to saving faith in Jesus. The saving faith they came to was when Paul went and he preached to them the crucified and risen Savior. And when he preached Jesus to them as the crucified and risen Savior, and when they believed the message that he preached, and they placed their faith and their trust in the faithfulness of Jesus, they received the Holy Spirit. He says, remember that? Remember that? He's reminding them that they did not receive the Holy Spirit by doing works of the law, but through hearing with faith. 
Verse 5, he said, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's quoting Genesis 15, verse 6. We're going to go back there. Okay, Paul's using Abraham as an example of what it looks like to receive the promises of God by faith rather than or over and against or in comparison to trying to earn the promises of God by doing works of the law. He's being very clear. He's trying to build a framework of thinking. Verse 15, here's our text this morning. To give a human example, brothers. This is Paul's illustration. Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. He's giving us an example from day-to-day life. Man-made covenant. He's talking about something like your will, like your last will and testament kind of will. We've all seen this. Your grandparents pass away. The lawyer sits down with the beneficiaries of the will. You know, you get the silver spoons and you get grandma's jewels and you can have her clothes or something like that. I don't know. Bless you. We've all been in, in conversations like that. People have died in our lives. We see their will. Whatever they have is dispersed according to what they have written. You can't annul it. You can't cancel it. You can't add to it. You can't modify it once it has been ratified. So providing that everything was done legally and there isn't anything underhanded going on, once that person signs their will, the terms of it can't be changed. It's official. Okay, Paul's saying it's like that with the promise of God to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ. Hundreds of years before God gave the law to Moses, which we'll talk about next week, which is really the second half of this text, God gave Abraham a promise. Verse 16 in our text says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, what are we talking about Abraham? Abraham pops in every once in a while through Galatians. He's going to be popping in for the next few weeks. Okay, in Genesis chapter 12, God Almighty comes to Abraham and he makes him a promise that he is going to make Abraham's offspring into a mighty nation. This is the promise that he speaks to the man named Abraham. He says, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. At the time, Abraham's name is actually Abram, and God changes that later on, but I'm going to call him Abraham the whole time because Paul calls him Abraham. He says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And you know what? Abraham believes him. And it was counted to him as righteousness. That's what it says later on. This is an eternal promise. It's actually not just for Abraham, but for all who would ever trust in God like he did. And so the promises God made to Abraham about his future land and his future family that we can see in Genesis 12 and then in Genesis 15 and then in Genesis 17 and beyond... These promises, we need to read them in light of Jesus. That's what Paul's doing here in this text. Paul is making a very important point that these promises to Abraham apply to those of us who follow Christ, who are his offspring, because we are those who trust in Christ. So Paul says what he sees in Abraham's offspring is found in something like a corporate solidarity in Christ. 
We are one in Christ. We are united in Christ. What he means is Jesus is the offspring of Abraham through whom he will bless the whole world. And so are all of we if we put our trust in him, if we put our trust in Jesus as well. So Abraham's story then becomes our story. See, you you think sometimes that when you're reading the Bible, you go, oh, the Old Testament, that's all the Jewish story. I want to get into the bits here after Jesus comes and then it becomes my story. No, 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 no. We go all the way back. All this whole thing's our story. We're grafted in. His promises fulfilled in Christ come to us. That's good news. So if you fast forward to where we're going in a couple of weeks, Paul makes this point explicit. He says in Galatians 3 verse 29, he says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Ooh, your name's in the will. And you get it all. Eternal life. The promised land. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem wholeness and fullness and a life of no pain and no sorrow no more offenses between one another no more brokenness in our lives no more physical breakdowns in our body that cause us pain and suffering and sorrow no more watching your kids go through things that you don't want them to have to go through that pains your heart because they can't understand yet no more of that we're inheritors heirs according to the promise of god it gets so much better point of the whole thing is that you don't become a co-heir to all the things promised to abraham and then all the things promised to christ you don't become the co-heir through works of the law but through faith in the faithfulness of jesus it's not through works of the law so paul's saying to the galatian church hey stop trying to earn it it's yours let's look at 15 16 17 together To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. And look at verse 17. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. Don't you love it when Paul writes a little line that says, this is what I mean? My goodness, if he would do that more, right? My job, like you wouldn't even really need me. That's what I'm saying. Like, like we would just not have to worry. This is what I mean by all that. Let me break it down for you guys 2,000 years later who live in a completely different culture and have to understand everything that was going on in the first century in order to understand the letters that I was writing. This is what I mean. The law comes afterward. It does not annul the covenant or the promise previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Doesn't do away with it. So we're still looking at Abraham, the man of faith. Paul's writing to people. They've been told their faith's not quite enough. They've been told they need to keep different aspects of the law of Moses as well. And Paul goes, wrong! says because the law came after the promise just because of the law coming after the promise it doesn't mean god's promises to abraham are null and void you can't void them this is what he said to the romans he said this to the church in rome for the promise to abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith for 
If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That means it's not just the Jewish nation who could inherit the promise, but actually all of us. It's a global reality. We're going to talk about the law next week, and, and, and I think it's some um, verse 19. Is it verse 19 that starts out? Why the law? That's where we're starting next week. We're going to talk about that. Why the law? But Paul's hammering away on this every chance he gets. He says the promised inheritance we have in Christ, the salvation that we have in Christ, it does not come from obedience to the law by doing works of the law. It comes through faith in the promised Messiah who would come and redeem us from the curse of the law and become a curse for us. That's what we heard last week. You go, Brett, my goodness gracious, we've heard this for, this is 13 weeks in a row. Again, I would refer you back to my earlier statement. It's five and a half years of weeks in a row. Jonathan Edwards somewhere, it's said that he said this, we can't find it in his writings. The only thing you add to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. You don't get to earn it. Goodness, when you come into the kingdom of God, when you come and receive the salvation offered in Christ by grace as a gift, and you receive that by faith, that that reorients your whole life. There's tons of work to do as soon as you come to know God and your whole worldview gets changed and you kind of get spun around in repentance and you start heading a different direction. There are many things to give ourselves to, lots of works to accomplish. You just don't get to earn your salvation by doing any of them. You get to prove your salvation is real by doing them. So if you want a list of things to do, just, you can look up the 59 one another's in the New Testament. That'll help you out. Love one another, care for one another, bear one another's burdens, etc. If you want some things to do, study the topic of justice through the Bible. That'll give you the rest of your life work, no problem. Then you'll be like, gosh, I wish I didn't study this. This is so much harder than what I... Yeah, exactly. But you don't get to earn your salvation by doing those things. But you want to. Because our human hearts are bent on earning. Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort. There's lots of effort in the kingdom of God. He says, grace is opposed to earning. You don't get to earn it. And that's what Paul's writing to the churches of Galatia. That's why he says in verse 18, for if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So the inheritance of a right standing with God, which, which is the fullness of our very salvation itself, it does not come by earning through law-keeping. It comes as a gift of grace to be received by faith. The Galatian false teachers, if they had it right, and that your right standing before God was Jesus plus doing works of the law or Jesus plus something else, that would mean that what God has offered us is no longer received as a promise. That would mean that it's on you to earn it. It would mean that somehow, through your own merit, you can earn it. But if salvation in any way is by keeping the law, which is what the false teachers of Galatia were telling them, then it's not a promise. The promise is null and void. Look, you can't have it both ways. 
You either earn it all on your own, or you receive it all as a gift, because Christ has earned it in your place. You can come to God with your hands full of your accomplishments and your work and your merit. And you can say to him, look at what I've accomplished. You should save me. Or you can come to him with the empty hands of faith. Say, I've got nothing on my own. Simply to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hands I bring. Look at the second part of verse 18 again. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. He gave it. John Stott highlights this in his little commentary on Galatians. It's a free gift. It's a gift of grace. He says it's a free gift and it's a given for good forever. It will not stop. It will not be taken away. God does not go back on his promises. That's the entire point of the whole text. John Stott said, so every sinner who trusts in Christ crucified for salvation, quite apart from any merit or good works, receives the blessing of eternal life and thus inherits the promise of God made to Abraham. Okay, so that's my second introduction. My first introduction was more pastoral. The second introduction was an overview of the text. Let me move on to my points. I don't actually have any points. But I'm going to try and bring this home for us in a way that I think we feel it. We're putting a lot of stock in the promises that God made to Abraham in this text, right? There's a lot of stock being placed here. But I want to ask you, like I did at the very beginning, how do you know you'll receive what God promises you? How can I trust God's promise to me? Because this is what happens in our lives. And it happened in Abraham's life too. I don't have time to get into it. But God said, I'm going to give you a son. And then when it wasn't happening... He kind of figured out his own way to do it. And he went and had a son who was not the son of the promise. He had a son not with his wife, but with his servant. Do you know why? Because he didn't trust that God was actually going to do what he promised to do. Oh, I do this. God says, I'm going to give you peace. And I go, boy, you know, I think I'm stressed out because I just have a few uh, things at work that are just not quite tied up. It's a few loose ends. And I feel the weight of that. And so, yes, I know the promise is peace, but I actually think I can go earn it on my own if I just go and accomplish those things. Yeah, you're not like me at all, so I know that you're looking at me like, well, I don't understand. (laughs) I hear the promises of God like this text says. There's nothing I can add to my salvation. There's nothing I added to earn it. And I think to myself, boy, I think God would love me more if I did blank. That's a lie from the pit of hell. But I believe it. I fight against it. He's promised he'll never leave me nor forsake me. Well, why would I worry about that? But I do. Again, obviously none of you have ever felt these things. And I think, oh gosh, when my kids and my wife are in the car driving by themselves and they take off and they're driving down the highway at whatever speed my wife drives and she's a little crazy. And I think, oh my, I start to get worried. You know what I think? I think, boy, I should have driven them. 
I should have driven them. Then they'd be safe. Do you know why I think that? Because I think that if I was in control of the situation, it would be okay. It's because I won't give God control. I don't trust him. Come on. How do I know that his promises to me are true? How do I know that? That's what Abraham struggled with, just like we do. It's like the story in the Gospel of Mark, and this man cries out, and his son is sick, and Jesus is coming to help him, and Jesus says, you just need to believe that I can do this, and the guy says, I believe, help my unbelief. That's like my prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. He's struggling with this question. It's not unique to me, or it's not unique to you. It goes all the way back to Abraham. Genesis 12, God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham goes, hey, God, I don't have any kids. God says, I know. Genesis 13, verse 14 through 17 says, lift up your eyes. God says to him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Abraham says, well, that's weird because I don't own any property or have any kids. Verse 16, he says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And Abraham's like, I got like a cart. And I got some livestock. I've been walking around homeless for a while, God. Like, thanks for the future promise. I'm not sure. I trust you. Just look at no kids. Then the Lord comes to Abraham in a vision and he tells him things are going to go well for him. And Abraham says, right. Again, I don't have an heir. And God says, trust me. Genesis 15, verse 5. And he brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven. This is at night. Brings Abraham out of his tent. And he says, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he says, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Have you ever been in the middle of the mountains where there is no light pollution and step outside of a tent in the middle of the night when it's pitch black and the moon is sort of low or gone or not that bright, and you look up and you see nothing but galaxies. <laughs> this is Abraham. God keeps telling him, I promise you. I promise you. Your offspring are going to be like that. The conversation keeps going. Genesis 15, verse 7 says, He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. This is where he called him out of, from his hometown. He called Abraham out of there. He says, to give you this land to possess. But he said, Abraham said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Or let me translate that for you. How do I can know I can trust your promise to me? In spite of all the faith that Abraham's got, all the reassurance that he's got from God, all the conversations he has had, all the revelations that he has had, all the visions, all the dreams. How do I know I can trust you? God speaks to him. Verse 9, he says to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove that away. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was reading through Genesis. That seems like a complete non sequitur. He goes, hey, how can I trust you? God says, bring me a heifer. And you're like, all right. Like, I can go in that one. Bring me a heifer, bring me a goat, bring me a ram, bring me a turtle, or bring me a pigeon. But there's no other instructions from God. And Abraham just starts slicing them. I was like, what is happening? Clearly, I have no clue what's going on in this text. That's how I remember reading that. 
Abraham takes the animals and he slays them. And then he cuts them down the middle. He cuts them in two parts. And he puts one part over here and he puts one part over here. He got half a heifer, half a heifer, half a goat, half a goat. And then he sits down. He's waiting for God. And the birds of prey, they start coming. The scavengers start coming. The vultures are circling. Abraham's chasing them away off the carcasses. Because there's dead animals laying there. Blood everywhere. The Bible's messy, friends. God didn't tell him to cut them. He just said, bring those to me. Abraham knew exactly what was going on. Because Abraham's culture 4,000 years ago was different than today. If we ask somebody, we're talking about making a deal. And we say, well... How can I know that I can trust your promise to me? Right? In 2019, we don't go and get a heifer. Right? We, we, we go and write a contract. And then it's authorized with signatures. The proper signatories authorize the contract with their signatures. They say, I promise to do what I say in this contract. I've got a contract on my desk right now, actually, for uh, the Stanley Theater. So we can do our Good Friday service there again this year. I got to review that Tuesday morning. I got to sign the contract as an authorized signatory of Christ City Church. And that says that they promise to give us the use of their facility from whatever hour to whatever hour. And we promise to pay them a certain amount of money and not wreck their stuff. I'm going to sign that. That's going to be official. No heifers, no goats. Okay. 4,000 years of distance between Abraham and today. In an oral culture like Abraham's, it was done differently. When a king or a lord wanted to make a covenantal type agreement with somebody who was lesser, a servant, one of his subjects, the lesser of the two parties would kill some animals and they would arrange them in two rows like Abraham did with an aisle down the middle. And then the lesser of the two parties typically would walk through the center of the animals that had been slain. It was a way to say, if I don't hold up my end of the agreement, my life shall be like the lives of these animals. If I don't hold up my end of the agreement, my blood shall be spilt like the blood of these animals. If I don't hold up my end of the agreement, my body shall be torn like these animals. This is the curse of the covenant. You're saying, if I make good on it, we're going to do what we said we would do. If I don't make good on it, so be it to me. So when God told Abraham to get the animals, he knew exactly what to expect. He knew that this was a covenant ceremony. It was just like somebody would say, well, let's make a deal. And he'd say, I'll go drop the contracts. It was that simple. But look at Genesis 15, verses 12 to 16. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now, it's a little bit unclear as to what kind of darkness this was. Because the sun had not yet gone down. But nevertheless, darkness fell upon Abraham. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, 400 years is how long Abram was promised that his people would be in slavery. 430 years is in our text in Galatians, because that's how long God's people were in slavery. Verse 14 says, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. 
You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. He says they're going to come back and take the land. But look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Abraham kills the animals. He lays them out in two rows with an aisle in between. And it says a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Uh, When it talks about smoke and flames, it's the same language that gets used for the presence of God on Mount Sinai. It's the same language that gets used of God when his people are wandering through the desert. It's an intentional way of speaking to clearly mean, to clearly evoke an image representing the very presence of God. And I want you to notice something. It says God moves down the aisle in between the pieces of the animals that Abraham sacrificed. It says the flames, the smoke, comes down, and it goes in between down the aisle. It says, the flaming torch passed between these pieces, and on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram. God alone moves down the aisle in between the pieces of the animals that Abraham has sacrificed. Now that's radically unexpected. The lesser of the two parties was always the one who went down the middle and guaranteed that they would be torn to shreds if they did not hold up their end of the bargain. At times, the king or the Lord would at times go and pass through with the person who was the lesser of the two. There might have been a greater king and a lesser king, and then they would go through together. But never the king or the Lord who was more powerful on his own. That didn't happen. That was not the way treaties were made 4,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. And here's what God is saying. God is saying to Abraham, you can trust my promise. Because if I don't uphold it, My life shall be like the lives of these animals, and my blood shall be spilt like the blood of these animals, and my body shall be torn in two like these animals. And he's saying further, this is a one-way transaction. I don't need a guarantee from you. You don't get to add to your salvation. He accomplished it for you. There are no works you add to it. It's a one-way transaction. God is saying, I'll go through for both of us. And here's the gospel in this. Not only do I promise to uphold my end of the bargain, but I take upon myself the curse of the covenant for both of us. There's another way that a, a, a pastor said it. He said, Abraham, may I be cut off if I don't do my part of the covenant. But Abraham, hear me, my beloved. May I be cut off if you don't do yours. God says, Abraham, I will bless you even if it means I have to die. He says, I will deliver on my promise even if it means I have to lay my life down. Do you see the gospel in this? There was another time that darkness fell on the land before the sun went down. On the first Good Friday, when Jesus was crucified, it says in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, and verse 45, it says, From the sixth hour, 
There was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That is from noon till three in the afternoon. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. How do you know that you'll receive what God promises you? Christ City, we look at the cross. The God who came and made a promise to Abraham and who passed through the animals that had been slain and said, so be it to me if you don't uphold your end of the bargain. That promise is fulfilled in Christ, the offspring of Abraham, Christ. That promise is fulfilled upon the cross where his body is broken for us in our place. Where he takes upon himself the curse of the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. And he fulfills it. And he makes a way for us to come to him. God promised Abraham that he would make good on his promise to bless the world through him. Even if his own body was broken and his own blood was shed. How can I trust him? Oh, forgive me, Lord. I believe, help my unbelief. He gave it all. Would you stand with me as we respond? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.